everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a great whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. It's very late at night right now. Which is pretty spooky. It's scary how poorly I budget my time. And seeing as how the witching hour has come and gone, and the sandwiching hour has followed that, I suppose it's only natural, or should I say supernatural, that a young man's thoughts turn to monsters. And by young man, I mean relatively young man, and by that I mean me. So, you know how there's all these books about, like, sexy vampires and, like, sexy werewolves? And, you know, I I get it. You know, vampires are all aloof and eternally beautiful, and werewolves are all, like, savage and animalistic and hairy. But then I remembered that I think when I was in high school, I read an Anne Rice book that was about a sexy mummy. And come on, that's just stupid. But if they do decide to make a movie about a sexy mummy, or I guess another movie about a sexy mummy, because I think that's kind of what they were going for with that dude who looks like Billy Zane in the Brendan Fraser mummy movies. But anyway, I thought of a good thing for a sexy mummy to say. Oh no, my cursed and necrotic flesh is just rotting away. And so are my inhibitions. So if you're working on a screenplay for Anne Rice's The Mummy and you need a script doctor, I think you know who to go to. It, it's it's me. You, you go to me because I, I came up with that line. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Maltish Natovny. It's a clever one, but it's one that I think probably works better written than it does spoken, but I'm going to do my best. So, here goes. With A, grab bag of ordinals, to enumerate this, I, I, I can now call, fourth, a synopsis. Thanks, Maltish. Defenders, number 45, March 1977. We must free the Defenders. Plotted by Jerry Conway. Dialogued by David Anthony Kraft and Roger Sleifer. Drotted by Keith Giffen. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Lettered by John Frost. Colored by David Hunt. And edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Red Guardian. Hellcat. Clea, the Incredible Hulk, kind of, Luke Cage, sort of, Nighthawk, I guess, and Doctor Strange, in a manner of speaking. Previously in The Defenders, Doctor Strange's oldest, dearest, never-before-mentionedest pal, Omar Karindu, was in New York and called his best buddy Steve over to his hotel room for a visit. 
The recently retconned into existence Corindu was head of a secret society called the Cult of the Unliving Four, which was dedicated to guarding an ancient and powerful mystical ruby called the Star of Kapistan. Lately, the star had been acting a bit hinky, and Omar hoped that Steve could take a look at it for him. Doctor Strange obliged, because hey, what are never-before-mentioned best friends for, if not furthering hastily written plots? Unfortunately, as soon as Steve laid eyes on the mystical MacGuffin his newly minted oldest chum had been safeguarding, it zonked out his mind something fierce. Oh no! Meanwhile, back at Steve's sanctum sanctimonious, the rest of the defenders had their hands full battling a cadre of criminal crumbums led by the egomaniacal, and also regular maniacal, Egghead, Egghead. With the aid of a conveniently self-contained nuclear implosion, our titular non-team managed to defeat their ovoid-headed adversary. Hooray! With Egghead's apparent implosion into at least temporary non-existence, the defenders split into groups to deal with two new unsettling developments. The continued absence of Stephen Strange from his apartment, and the returning presence of Jack Norris to Steve's apartment. Hulk, Luke Cage, and Nighthawk headed over to Omar Karindu's hotel room in search of the mystical mage, while Valkyrie and the Red Guardian remained at the Sanctum to deal with the less pleasant task of putting up with Norris's nonsense. Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body is the host for the sorcerously created persona Valkyrie, yelled at Val about how she had to be in love with him whether she liked it or not. Val replied that Jack should fuck off and go away. Uncharacteristically, Jack listened and fucked off. Hooray! Norris hit the bricks, and before the matrimonially-minded meat had got a chance to change his mind, he bumped into a mysterious individual from his past, with whom he wanted nothing to do. Without pausing to note the irony of his predicament, Norris fled from the character who insisted on maintaining an unwanted relationship with him. Hooray! Meanwhile, Omar Karindu was filling in Kyle, Luke, and the Hulk about what had happened with Steve. Apparently, the Star of Kapistan was a sentient telepathic gem that prized peace and harmony above all else. One time, the Jewel tried to bond with a human host and briefly formed a being called the Red Raja, which was totally obsessed with the idea of peace, at any cost. Fortunately, Omar was around to helpfully sneak up on and shoot the Raja in the head, killing the human host and returning the star to its previously inert form. Unfortunately, this time when the Ruby decided to take a human host for a test drive, the Steve-mobile happened to be parked out front with its keys in the ignition. Now the Ruby's not in considerable power had merged with Doctor Strange's own mystical might and formed a new even more powerful Red Raja, intent on subjugating the minds of everyone on Earth in order to ensure an end to all conflicts. No sooner had Corindu finished his exposition dump than the Scarlet Stone Subsumed Sorcerer showed up, decked out in the magical armor and stylish turban of the Red Raja, and bent Omar's will to his own. Kyle, Luke, and the Hulk resisted valiantly but soon found themselves, along with a significant portion of the city of New York, falling under the sway of the mind-mongering mystical mineral. Back in Greenwich Village, Valkyrie and the Red Guardian were celebrating the departure of Jack Norris when they found themselves imposed upon by another uninvited visitor. The happy-go-lucky heroine Hellcat, aka Patsy Walker, was standing in Steve's study in all her form-fitting feline finery. The cat-costume-clad crime fighter informed her counterparts that she had been off in space learning to do kung fu and telepathy from a scantily attired bald woman named Moondragon. Moondragon's psychic spider sense started going off and informed her that something cataclysmic and likely ruby-related was about to go on back on Earth. 
Armed with this vague yet oddly specific knowledge, the psychic sensei sent her student Hellcat back to Earth to warn its heroes about the coming Crimson Crisis. Patsy swung by the Avengers Mansion to give them a heads up, then headed over to Steve's place to warn the Sorcerer Supreme. But it appeared that Miss Walker's words of warning may have arrived too late. A glance outside the Brownstone's window revealed that a horde of New Yorkers with vacant eyes were marching mindlessly towards Central Park. The trio of heroes rushed out to investigate and found themselves confronting the Red Raja and an apparent army of his enthralled followers, including their erstwhile non-teammates Luke Cage, Nighthawk, and the Hulk. Gadzooks! How will the Red Raja demonstrate his desire for universal peace and harmony? Have we finally seen the last of connubially confused creepo Jack Norris? And which of our lucky heroines will finally get the opportunity to beat up Nighthawk? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so by beating the crap out of everyone and making his followers hit each other, sadly, no, and the Red Guardian. Good for you, Tanya. Valkyrie Hellcat and the Red Guardian burst onto the scene in Central Park to confront the Red Raja and his growing throng of ensorcelled minions. Acting as spokesperson for the trio of heroines, Valkyrie makes the brief declarative sentence that serves both as her group's mission statement and the issue's title. Namely, We must free the defenders! Fair enough. The Red Raja explains that he has no interest in fighting them. His entire existence is dedicated to the ideal of peace and universal harmony. Then he makes a giant statue of Doctor Strange out of rocks and boulders that smacks the ladies around while quoting Rush lyrics at them. Gotta say, getting some mixed messages from the Raja here. While Valkyrie and Hellcat dodge the lava beams that are now shooting out of the Stone Steve's peepers, the Red Raja focuses his attention on the Red Guardian, attempting to telepathically indoctrinate the crimson-clad communist crime fighter into his cult. Despite their sartorial similarities, Tanya attempts to resist becoming a minion of the mineral-slash-magician, but as the mesmeric onslaught continues, she finds her resolve weakening. Just when she is about to succumb to the Scarlet Svengali, Hellcat leaps in and tackles her, breaking the purported pacifist hypnotic hold. The Raja is incensed by the distraction, and starts zapping the defenders with energy blasts, while deriding them as, quote, upstart females, unquote. Wow. You know... For a dude who was an inert gem for thousands of years until about 20 minutes ago, the Red Rasha seems to have taken to misogyny pretty quickly. Oh wait, that's right. He's got Doctor Strange's psyche riding shotgun in there. Damn it, Steve! Our heroes manage to escape the explosions caused by their allegedly anti-violence antagonist and head back to the Sanctum to regroup and treat their wounds. On their way, they bump into a group of random college students who are on their way to confront the Raja, who had apparently entranced a significant portion of their cohort. Val is like, okay, good for you, only that dude beat up the Hulk last issue, so maybe just don't. The iconoclastic consortium of riled-up counterculture college students is like, okie-dokie, and head home. Speaking of people who have uncharacteristically listened to Valkyrie when she recently told them to go away... Jack Norris is speeding through traffic in an attempt to elude the enigmatic acquaintance who accosted him outside Steve's place. Jack is doing a surprisingly efficient job weaving between other vehicles in a high-speed chase. I guess there's more than one of the mysterious strangers, because one of the speech bubbles from the car that's following Norris informs us that they have orders not to harm the nuptially notioned Neanderthal. Looks like Jack is about to leave his pursuers in the dust, 
when one of his stalkers fires an energy burst that blows out his rear tire and causes his car to crash into the guardrail. Without pausing, a terrified Jack rolls away from his totaled vehicle and vaults over a tall fence, escaping into the roadside wilderness. Dang! I wonder what kind of enemy could have scared Jack into such unlikely competence. Is his off-panel adversary someone from the cult that he and Barbara once belonged to? An old foe from the 15 minutes or so that he convinced himself he was a secret agent? Did he sign up for one of those Columbia House deals where you get 10 CDs for a penny, but then you have to buy one a month at full price, and now they want him to pay $16 for a Soup Dragons album that he didn't even pick out? Oh no! Run, Jack! Run! Love God was a pretty good album, but $16 for Divine Thing? No! Run! Back in the park, the Red Raja just kind of goofs off for a bit. First, he makes the Hulk simultaneously smack Luke and Kyle around in a Three Stooges-type move that's, you know, kind of fun in a slapstick sort of way. Then he, uh... Well, there's a three-panel sequence where it really looks like he has the Hulk go down on him. It's, uh... Yeah. Anyway, back in Greenwich Village, the gang has patched themselves up. Valkyrie wonders aloud what it was that made Tanya appear to be marginally more susceptible to the Raja's influence than Patsy and Val were. Hellcat posits that her piece-of-shit ex-husband, Buzz, would probably attribute any of the Red Guardian's perceived shortcomings to her being a lousy pinko. Val reprimands Patsy for parroting her ex's xenophobia, but Tanya interrupts her and is like, No, is good point. My beliefs are dumb and wrong. Believing in the common good and general well-being of the proletariat has made my Soviet mind weak and vulnerable to the Red Raja's power. Plus, our names are both starting with word red, so there's that as well. Val agrees that that may be a possibility, adding that since she herself was formed mystically and has no previous social conditioning, and Patsy had a couple of psychic lessons before her Jedi training got cut short, they're probably a little extra safe from the Raja's mental onslaught. Suddenly, Val remembers that there's another powerful lady who lives in the apartment who is also probably better mentally shielded than silly old communist Dr. Bolinsky. Hey, Val, ease the fuck off. Tanya was the only one of you that the Raja tried full-on direct astral assault on, and he still failed. So... Maybe hold off on patting yourself on the back about how you probably, theoretically, would have been immune to the Vermilion villain's mind games. The ladies stroll down the hall and pop in on Clea, Doctor Strange's disciple-slash-girlfriend, which is a totally normal and not-at-all-creepy hybrid relationship. The horn-haired refugee from the Dark Dimension has been floating cross-legged and astrally searching for the missing Steve. When our heroes enter her room, Clea is like, Hey guys, I'm so glad you stopped by. My cosmic investigation revealed that the Red Raja has taken over Steve and is using his powers. I wanted to let you know that. I mean, apparently not badly enough to walk down the hall and tell you, but you know now, that's the important thing. Now let's go free my master slash boyfriend. Okay, yeah, when I say it out loud like that, it it does sound a little bit... Uh, okay, yeah. Let, let's go. Meanwhile, in Central Park, the Red Raja is addressing the crowd of New Yorkers whose will he is subjugated. He gives a little speech about how individuality sucks and how dope everything is going to be once there's peace and harmony because the whole world's neck is under his shiny red boot. So, a couple things about that. One, 
Seeing as how you've already got the whole audience hypnotized, the proselytizing seems a little unnecessary. And B, if I wanted to hear somebody give a speech in Central Park about how much can be accomplished through unity, I'd watch the first 10 minutes of The Warriors. And you, Red Raja, are no Cyrus. Can you dig it? Fortunately, the Raja's oration is disrupted by the timely arrival of Valkyrie, Clea, the Red Guardian, and Hellcat. Hooray! The defenders who have been bewitched by the bedazzling bauble square off against those who have not. Valkyrie KOs a captivated Luke Cage with the flat of her sword. The Red Guardian yoinks the jetpack off a more confused-than-usual Kyle, causing the addled affluent avian aficionado to plummet face-first to the earth. Hooray! Hellcat runs away from the Hulk. Good call. While the Red Rasha is distracted, Clea sneaks up behind him and lays a sorcerous whammy on the Machiavellian mineral-based mage. With the Raja off-balance, she manages to establish a telepathic link with Steve from inside his corporeal captivity within the Red Raja. Together, the teacher and student, slash lovers, I'm okay, manage to free Steve just long enough for him to shatter the Star of Kapistan, destroying the Red Raja and dispelling his influence over the citizens of New York. Hooray! The defenders all hug and make up. Then we get an epilogue. A lot of that going around lately. At least this time it's just the one. Dr. Stephen Strange gathers his non-teammates in the Sanctum Sanctimonious. The Hulk is worried that Steve is mad at him for trashing the Sanctum during his absence. Steve tells him, No, no, the Hulk. Being upset that I wasn't there is the proper reaction to have. Frankly, I'm a little disappointed Kyle didn't break anything. No, it's nothing as serious as me being annoyed at you. The reason I called you all here is because I am quitting the Defenders. Dun, dun, dun. Aw, congratulations, Steve. By quitting the team, today you become a real Defender. I expect that Namor will stop by soon so that he and the Hulk can throw you the Defender's equivalent of a bar mitzvah. Mazel tov. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am well enough. How are you? I am doing well myself. So, as you were reading this issue, I told you to do some prep work and listen to Rush. How'd that work out? That song is so long. The the 20-minute song? That's just, the whole one album? Yep. Yep. The, yeah, 2112. Mm-hmm. That was what you instructed me to listen to. Uh-huh. And so I asked the device to play the song, and the device said sure, and it just kept going. <laughs> it was pretty good, though. Yeah, it was uh, not a bad album. And I think when you started reading the comic book, you saw why I had you listen to Rush while you were reading it? So I was, let's say, a casual fan of Rush as a younger person. Sure, mostly just Bitor and the Snow Dog, like everybody else. Sure, yeah. No, I didn't immediately connect what was going on in, in the story to the story of the record. No, but I mean, you saw that it said dedicated to Neil Getty and Alex of Rush. Absolutely, yeah. I saw that at the at the outset, and, and I was listening to it, reading the comic, but I didn't get the whole priests and basically everything that the Red Raja is telling people to do. Mm. Stop having a good time, man. So... Neil, Getty, and Alex is, of course, Neil Pert, Getty Lee, and Alex... 
of Raj. <laughs> Leifson? Yeah. I, I know what. I know what shit. I was just, you know, having, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. a fun. Okay. But yeah, it turns out that the writers of this, specifically David Anthony Kraft, is a big Rush fan. And so decided to dedicate this story to Rush and kind of repurpose the Red Raja character to be a reflection of the themes of Neil Peart's libertarian version of a dystopian nightmare that is the future of 2012, where the priests who worship the Red Star of the Solar Federation will have subsumed everyone's individuality in favor of the collective good. I certainly wouldn't have caught that if I hadn't looked into it a little bit more, but it's kind of an interesting story. Frankly, I think it's probably more interesting than most of the story in the comic book. This idea of just like, let's just make this issue a fan letter to Rush, because we love Rush so much. Didn't it, Apparently this guy did that for the Blue Oyster Cult also. Yeah, we'll get to that eventually. Woohoo! I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. The funny thing is, it wasn't at all jarring to me to have the storyline basically repurposed as a fan letter to Rush. No, it worked. And I mean, the Red Raja character was not particularly well fleshed out initially. And, you know, still really doesn't get that well fleshed out. But it totally does work in that context. And they even got to have him quote some of Rush's lyrics, I believe, when he says... Catch the mystery... Catch... Wait, no. No, no. <laughs> Truth is false and logic lost. Um, That is a direct quote from the song Twilight Zone off of the album 2112. Yeah, there were just a lot of weird, fun touches like that in there that totally did work. That's pretty awesome. I can, I like have this image in my head of like the artists and the writers like all kind of hanging out in the same room, blasting Rush, like working (laughs) feverishly on their deadlines. It's very 70s thing going on. If I can imagine, like, Neil Peart just, like, reading a bunch of, like, comic books and then just being like, oh, and then this happens. It's kind of nice synergy. And, I mean, it kind of worked. Like, if they were trying to get Rush's attention, they did. Mm-hmm. Rush read this issue and then invited Roger and David to meet them backstage at a concert and brought them to a concert. Free tickets. Uh-huh. Did you see the picture of them? I did. It's so good. (laughs) Neil Peart's outfit is... (laughs) I guess his outfit is just like a sweater vest over kind of a blousey long sleeve t-shirt. But he looks like Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. He's got that kind of a performative mustache. and Performative mustache. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Alex... um, Looks like Prez, kind of. The teenage president. Mm. But David Anthony Kraft and Roger Silver, like, if you were just looking at that picture, they look like they're just five members of a band. They do. Instead of, like, three members of a band and two comic book dudes. It's pretty cool. And I like that. And the quote that Neil Peart had about it was, I read that issue and I enjoyed it. The Defenders was a really cerebral comic. We were knocked out. And it really meant a lot to us. It was, like, real credibility. That tiny little line in a comic book meant more to us than a whole issue of Rolling Stone or anything else. It meant something to us because that's a real measure of respect. It's from one artist to another. It's like praise of the praiseworthy. Wow. That's really nice. That is really nice. I saw a documentary about Rush. They all seemed like really nice guys. Well, they're Canadian. Yeah. I know Neil Peart has a bit of a reputation for being pretty standoffish and also a libertarian and, you know... (laughs) Uh, is into Ayn Rand and shit. 
And that definitely does come through in his lyrics. But fundamentally, they all seemed like really nice guys. There was a part where when they were talking to Neil Peart, they were asking him if he ever got sick of playing Tom Sawyer all the time. And he was just like, no, because that drum part is really, really hard. So every time I do it right and I don't fuck it up, I feel really proud of myself. Nice. And I was like, ah, that's, that's cool. But I like the idea that they just put a little tiny line dedicating this comic book to these people that they're a fan of. And then they end up getting invited backstage to a concert. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So I would just like to say, this episode is dedicated to Public Enemy. (laughs) You hear me, Chuck D? Praise from the praiseworthy. That's me. I'm praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. And you're definitely praiseworthy. Fucking love Public Enemy. Yeah. They're doing a European tour right now. No kidding. Yeah. It's them and De La Soul and the Wu-Tang Clan. Damn. So... This podcast is also dedicated to De La Soul and the Wu-Tang Clan. Mm-hmm. I bet the Wu-Tang Clan would enjoy this podcast. They would. I mean... They like comic books. I know they're generally more Marvel fans. Mm-hmm. I read their comic book. Mm-hmm. Well, I read Method Man's comic book. Okay. I mean, I, there's parallels. Like, our podcast has uh, some, you know, advice for people on things like how to protect your neck. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Ascots or cravats. How to be three feet high and rising. Uh-huh. That that would be that strong Jamaican incense. Mm-hmm. And um, it's louder than a bomb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when I don't uh, do the compression right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no. there's, there's yeah. three parallels. Exactly. Free tickets, guys. Come on, guys. So, what do you think of the comic book, uh, Rush Analogies Aside? I liked the fact that it wasn't so much that like the gender dynamics were changed, really, because Val is usually a pretty strong character and, mm-hmm. and gets to do a lot of cool shit. But it really was like the, the ladies rescuing the dudes. And that was kind of fun. I appreciated that. Yeah. And, you know, it was nice that they roped Clea in there and Clea got to kind of slap Steve around mystically for a little bit. Dude, sorta. she was actually pretty badass in this uh, issue. Yeah, she was totally badass. She didn't get a ton of FaceTime, but... When she, what she did, she did a good job. And her lapels were off the fucking charts, man. I know they're big, but they, they were, were especially big in this issue. They were pointier than normal, I think maybe to attempt to distract from the fact that she seemed to be wearing just a fishnet bodysuit. Body stocking, I think they call them. Yeah. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Quite a look. That was a look. We'll definitely get to this more in the sartorially speaking section, but the Red Guardian was sporting an interesting look for a bit of this issue as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Hellcat was a lot of fun. I think she's going to be a really fun addition to the team. Yeah, I liked her as well. Uh, Except her eyes are creepy cat eyes. Yeah, I think that's part of the costume. It only shows up sometimes. Usually they're, you know, blank. And then every now and then they got those weird little creepy cat pupils. Maybe they're like uh, lenticular animation. Like holograms, so like if you see them from a certain angle, then they uh, they look like that. Lenticular. Yeah. Yeah, they're probably that lenticular. What does that mean? You know those holograms, where when you look at them from one angle and then from another angle, the image shifts. Yeah, but like lent, lent has to do with the lens? Oh, no, it's from uh, lent. You're supposed to not look at them between um, Fat Tuesday oh, okay. and uh, Ecumenical Thursday. Okay. That makes sense. Right, right. You're supposed to give them up for Lent. Mm -hmm. That's why there's so many of them during Mardi Gras. Right. Got it. Yeah. Show us your lenses. (laughs) Yes. What do you think was up with those college students that showed up for like a page and a half and seemed to serve no 
purpose to the story whatsoever. Near as I can tell, the writers were thinking that maybe they needed to explain to the readers why the protagonists who had not succumbed to the Red Raja had not succumbed to the Red Raja by saying, hey, some people don't. Yeah, but they didn't really, like, they showed that some people were less susceptible to it than others, but not any reasoning behind that. And then they did explain that later. It just seemed like a weird, like, dodge and faint. Or do you think we'll see more of these college students later? No. Yeah, I, I don't know. It didn't seem to really go anywhere or have much of a point. Maybe they're saying something about, hey, man, like, the faculty at this university are totally square. Well, it wasn't just the faculty. It was most of the students, too. And all the students that listen to those faculty, <laughs> except these few free thinkers. Right, right. They got duped into this commie nonsense. Yeah, when we were just off smoking the joint and listening to Rush, man. Right. They didn't necessarily seem like a crowd of Rush fans. Maybe. Mm, Tough I don't to know. tell. Look at the look at the. There dudes. were actually. I might be absolutely wrong because there were two dudes in the crowd of college fans that to... might have been uh, David Kraft and Roger Sliffer. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. Which yeah. honestly might have been the whole reason why the gang of college students who just happens to bump into Val and Red Guardian and Hellcat and then say, hey, we're going to go confront the Red Raja. And then they're like, no, don't do that. And they're like, okay, we won't go confront the Red Raja. Showing what free thinkers they are and why they're so unsusceptible to the Red Raja's influence. Yeah, well, shit, I don't know. If I ran into Valkyrie and company and they're like, hey, don't do that thing, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> Especially if you were hitting Hellcat's eye lenses from the right angle. Ooh, no thank you. Let's get into the specific reasons why our protagonists who were immune were immune. Because it apparently did not have anything to do with their gender. Nope. Val is immune because she was created sorcerously by the Enchantress and therefore doesn't have any ingrown cultural cues that would inform her about the importance of community. Does that sound accurate, do you think? Yeah, essentially, she didn't have all the, like, the cultural mores that, that we have in general, right? Like, right. She, she's this kind of freshly formed, sorcerously produced personality with none of the baggage. And Hellcat is immune because she has had some psychic training and can shield her mind psychically. Yeah, from Moon Dragon. Mm-hmm. And Clea presumably is immune because she is from the dark dimension, so they're all a bunch of assholes there that are all looking out for number one. And while she is a nice person, that was the culture that she was cultured in. Whereas the Red Guardian is a little bit susceptible to the Ruby's influence because she was raised in a communist culture. But she is still way less susceptible to it than any of the other defenders, with the exception of Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Clea. So it was a little bit confusing what it was trying to say, and it kind of seemed like it wanted things both ways with that. Also, I thought it was kind of on the nose for Red Guardian to basically say like, well, I am from a culture that is fundamentally bad, so therefore I am more susceptible because, you know, my own beliefs are stupid and wrong. Although, you may also hate your government. She did get that. Though. I did like that she had that point in, but it did seem odd and kind of an about face because she previously had very much set herself up as, yes, she was opposed to some of the things that she her government is doing, but she does consider herself both a communist and a patriot of the USSR. So kind of a weird about face. 
And also, like, she was starting to sway a little bit after getting full-on, one-on-one attention from the Red Raja, which nobody else has withstood either. So, the commie bashing doesn't necessarily bear out. That's one tough Russian. She sure is. That Ruski. Not too shabby. Tough as nails. Belinsky. Speaking of people I was somewhat less than impressed by, Jack Norris is back. Boo. Yeah. Although in this issue, we learn a couple of things about Jack Norris. He can vault a mean fence. Man, he sure can. I was impressed by that. Surprisingly lithe. After being bounced out of a car going at top speed Mm -hmm. onto the shoulder of a road. Who do you think was chasing him? Gosh, it really could be anybody. I'm sure he's pissed off plenty of people, especially from his spy caper days. From his spy caper afternoon? I don't know. I bet he <laughs> kept the tuxedo and some other shit. And well, at least on it. one thing that he kept is part of the $300,000 because he bought himself a Jaguar, mm-hmm. which did not seem to be with keeping with his previous lifestyle uh, before the payoff. But whoever is chasing him, they're driving Mercedes and shit. Mm-hmm. So it seems like not like bad spacemen, maybe. Or maybe bad spacemen? We really have no idea. All we know is they have energy blasts that they blast him with, and they drive cars. I was wondering if maybe it was some hippies. An energy blast was just like, just send some bad vibes at him, man. Oh, no. What if it's um, MC Solar is back? Solar? Yeah. That guy's a schlemiel. Canonically established schlemiel Solar, mm-hmm. I don't think is the one behind this. Well, I don't know. Do you think maybe it's whoever Jack was pretending to be on the phone with that one time when he spent an hour giving directions? <laughs> They're like, man, I got so lost for you. <laughs> Probably that's it. So let's talk about Steve slash the Red Raja. How much of the way he's acting do you think is Steve? And how much of the way he's acting do you think is the Ruby? Is it a 50-50 split? Is it 70 Steve? 30 Raja. I think his explanation of why he was susceptible to the whole deal sheds some light on the situation. I don't know if you want to give it a shot in your steviest voice. Okay, let me, uh... (laughs) You see, Valkyrie, I was susceptible to the ruby because I have to keep myself totally open-minded to all of the various things that might happen as a mystic. It's because I'm so great that the ruby was able to tap into my mind because I'm a real free thinker and just really in tune with the universe. Yeah, so, I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) 80-20? Yeah, there's definitely a fair amount of Steve coming through the Red Raja character. And you saw that every other character who was under... Behave, (laughs) masses! Behave. You saw that every other character that was under the influence of the ruby, was still talking in their own voice with their own vernacular. And so I thought it was very telling that when Steve was under the influence of the ruby, he was referring to women as females, which strikes me as a very fucking MRA move. And I think if instead of the Red Raja turban he was wearing, like a ruby fedora, that would have been way more appropriate. Mm. And also... (laughs) Do you think it is the Ruby or Steve that is the fan of slapstick humor? Oh, that's gotta be the Ruby, no? When he makes the Hulk 
just incidentally backhand the other defenders for no goddamn reason. Which I think was my favorite part of the entire comic book. It was pretty funny. It was hilarious. If it had been like Nighthawk and maybe Kyle, absolute hands down favorite. Power Man took one for the- Wait, I, I hate to break this to you. He's very good with his secret identity. Nighthawk is Kyle. Oh, sorry, I meant Norris. Oh. So, Nighthawk <laughs> and Norris. Power Man took one for the team in mm-hmm. comedic effect, but... It was very, very funny. He just has the Hulk, like, hold out his arms real fast and just instantly KOs both Kyle and Luke Cage. Didn't you do something like that in a hallway as a child at one point? It was not a hallway. It was the stairs leading outside of my elementary school, and mm. I, I grabbed the heads of two of my schoolmates and bonked them together as we were walking outside to recess. Because <laughs> you thought it'd be funny? Yeah, I actually don't really remember. It was just like one of those kid logic things. You're just like, hmm, I wonder if this works. <laughs> Did it work? They fell down and they were hurt and then I felt, <laughs> I felt bad. So it worked. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it was a very funny moment. <laughs> I think this may be still... The result of the meddling that the headmen did with Steve that had him going around pantsing people for a couple of issues. <laughs> Bring back pantsing Steve. Ah, that was the best Steve. The mischievous look on his face when he was pantsing politicians in the park. Really nice. Staying on Steve, how awkward do you think his talk was with his buddy Omar the next day? Mm. Because Omar has been the head of this order who is dedicated to guarding the star of Kapistan for thousands of years. And he called his buddy Steve in to look at the ruby because something was wrong with it. Things went a little bit wacky. The ruby exerted a lot of influence over Steve and also over Omar. The next day, Steve rolls up to the dude and is like, well, I fixed the problem. Oh, that's great. Well, so I'll just take the ruby back now and uh, be on my way. Um, yes, well, no can do. Well, you were under the influence. You you broke the ruby. (laughs) I tried to stop you, but you were more beast than man. Goodbye, Omar. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think Steve is the type of personality that is going to really... I think he can just justify whatever he does. Right. He would feel fine about it. He wouldn't be bashful or even realize that there might be some problem with Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. He'd he'd just be more I destroyed the troublesome gem. No need to thank me. You and your order can send me a Christmas card, maybe some pies. Yeah, no no concept of the thousand years of service or whatever. I think he thinks of himself as having done a fine job. Yeah, probably. There were a couple of panels that were very awkward to read for me. I want you to take a look at what's happening on the the top of page 16. It's right after Steve slash the Ruby has had Hulk give his friends the Corian elementary school treatment. (laughs) Oh. It really, really looks like the Red Raja... Oh, man. Is having the Hulk go down on him. Ah. And the look on Hulk's face. Mm. He, <laughs> he looks like he's pretty into it. And then the following panel. <laughs> oh, no. Do you think that's on purpose? The part where he's grabbing the back of Hulk's head and Hulk's kind of smiling. Like, I was like, oh, that's unsettling and kind of weird. I somehow skipped over the following panel, which really does look like like that. Um, I cannot imagine that is on purpose. I kind of can't imagine that it isn't. But why would they have the Hulk do that? Because they could. 
I don't think so. You don't think that's on purpose? No. That look on Hulk's face. Mmm, beans. <laughs> yeah! He is looking at Steve like Steve has a crotch full of beans. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, okay. There's a panel on depicting the mental duel between Steve and Clea, or more accurately, between Steve, Clea, and the star of Kapistan. Mm-hmm. But you see Steve's face on one side, Clea's face on the other side, and in the middle is what appears to be the placemat from a family restaurant that is a maze for a child to do in the shape of the Red Raja. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if perhaps the Red Raja's ultimate plan is to open a chain of family restaurants. Red Raja, it's got that ring to it, and finally, you need a little peace and quiet? Um, All he wants to do is promote peace and harmony, mm -hmm. and he's got this outline that is a fun maze for kids to do that'll keep them occupied. I think this is a good business plan. Yeah, look out, uh, IHOP. Look out, friendlies. So what sorts of dishes do you think the Red Raja is going to serve? What are they going to specialize in? I don't know. I mean, if it, he's probably going for like a Denny's type of thing, or do you think... Like just trying to appeal to Middle America, or is it bringing in, like, is it going to be trying to be uh, Middle Eastern cuisine given the star's origin, like mm. hummus poppers, yeah. um, fun like falafel blasters. Meats on sticks. Yeah. No. No? No. Well, I don't know. Maybe like the hybrid, like, you know, fries and euros. Yeah. Like maybe like the um, chilizification of yes. Middle Eastern cuisine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, Corey, do you want to invest in Red Rajas? Um, well, what's, what is the minimum investment? Um, I'm going to say we can start you off on an introductory package of, I think we can do it for 5,000 and your soul. So, and my soul. <laughs> okay, so are we talking a franchise thing here? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. This would be buying into the, this would be getting, uh, getting started. This would be the franchise packet. You'd still be responsible for finding the real estate, but this would be the package that would, uh, would, you know, you'd get your shirts, you'd get the recipes, and um, you'd have to order the food from our main office in uh, the middle of Central Park. Wow, I don't know if that sounds like... Your will is mine! Oh. Give in to the greater good, Corey! And partake in this fantastic franchise! Do you need some peace and quiet from the kids? Why not bring them all down to Red Raja? You'll love our Baba Ganoush blasters! I could use a hummus popper. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, the whole soul thing is a deal breaker. Your will is mine. Yeah, sorry, buddy. Damn it! That panel was impossible to read in the trade paperback. Which one? The one with the fun the maze? The placemat maze? Yeah. I can't even imagine what it would look like as a black and white reprint because so much of that is the maze itself is just like a light pink outline that's black. going forth. It was opaque, so it obscured the text. Oh man, that must have been very frustrating. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. That's why I'm not investing in your fucking restaurant, man. God damn these reprints! I do want some hummus, though. It's delicious. Mm. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, just more Rush. I just want to hear more Rush. Yeah, man. I like Rush. They're not my favorites. Yeah. You're my favorites, Public Enemy, the Wu-Tang Clan, and De La Soul. Huh? Huh? We also like Europe. The band or the country? 
the country where they are doing their tour that they're oh. going to invite Cry, us I to. I forgot. Europe's not a country. <laughs> oh. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Corey. Yep. What is your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh, man, that's easy. Yeah? Because it accompanied one of my favorite scenes that we already talked about, which is poor brainwashed Hulk crackwhack and his buddies. <laughs> Just only enough to stun them. I feel like it must have been nighttime, because if it is daytime, that is not going to just stun Kyle. Because he's just a normal dude. Just normal dude. He's got to be at least strong enough to just be stunned by a crack or a whack. Yeah, it was probably like... Like 9 o'clock. 7.30. Yeah, okay. Just like, not night, but he's getting stronger. It's not dark out yet, mm -hmm. but... He's like, oh, I feel pretty good. It's, it's always 5 o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Is that why he only gets his powers at night? Is it that when he drinks, he gets as strong as two men? Oh, maybe. maybe and, he, he and he's like, well, you know, I can't drink during the day. No, that doesn't check out at all. He's part of the wealthy class who no, he's a day drinker drinks for all sure. day. He invented like highballs, right? Yeah, he's like old money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, old money, they drink all day. Yeah, that's why highballs are traditionally drinks that you drink during the afternoon when the sun is a high ball in the sky. High noon, mm -hmm. high ball. Yeah, that's the thing about old money. Like, they have scenarios that allow them to, in terms of etiquette, just be wasted all day. In the morning, you have Bloody Marys, mm -hmm. then it's highballs in the afternoon, and then finally, it's cocktail hour. Oh, man, that's a fun tradition. And here's the, here's the secret, Corey. Hmm. It's always cocktail hour. Ooh, somewhere. Yeah. All if right. you're rich. That's probably why they invented yachts. So they could sail towards cocktail the timeline, get closer to cocktail hour. Because hmm. everybody knows cocktails are the best. Pretty good. Yeah. So, Crack Whack are your sound effects that were your favorites? Yeah, yeah. So, page 15, Crack Whack. It's also nice because it's a mnemonic device to remind us that Crack is, crack whack. is whack Yeah. if you're a teen. Yeah. No, wait. I'm sorry. That tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. Crack is, I believe, whack regardless of your age. Yes? Yeah. Unless... Whereas tobacco is only conditionally whack. Unless oh. it's after 7.30. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I did have a runner-up, which also rhymes with crack and whack, which was SPAC. Okay. That <laughs> happened on page 23, and that was the uh, noise of, I think, Red Guardian getting beamed off of a vine or mm. something. I did enjoy the crack whack, but I preferred Cradablom, which was a fun explosion noise that I have never seen before. Cradablom. Cradablom. And another explosion noise, which was Dakum. Mm. Yeah, that was a good one. We got some uh, fun, innovative sound effects in this that um, I like when the creative team changes up, although I obviously miss uh, Sal Buscema and Steve Gerber, but you get a different set of sound effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, I've been enjoying them. That first one sounds uh, Gaelic. Cradablom. Ah, yes. It's just up the mile from Tirnanog. Right? Yeah, very nice. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What metaphor did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie were it not made out of steel? So, despite the rich tapestry of language in this book, mm -hmm. I actually didn't really take 
a metaphor more so is just a goofy play on words that cracked me up um which came from hellcat and she's got a lot of those she does she's fun she is fun and it's on page 27 where she's trying to get away from getting beat up Mm -hmm. and she says if i don't get away from the situation of getting beat up i you know i'm gonna be pulping boots instead of puss in boots which i thought was a pretty a pretty funny play on words that was pretty good that was pretty good i noted that as well you're right there was very little in this in terms of more traditional metaphors but what I decided to go with was one character calling out another character for their use of euphemism. The Red Raja says, Your blind prejudice is unfortunate. These people are not in my power. They are merely in harmony with my wishes, as you soon shall be. And Red Guardian responds, The Red Guardian is well acquainted with euphemisms used to disguise dominance. Mm. Which is what that was, and that is a, a form of metaphor, an unsavory form of metaphor, but uh, well called out by the Red Guardian. All right, good job, Bolinsky. 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 Corey, in this issue, as in every issue of a Defenders comic book, there is one character who's just gotta be a sucker, who has to act in a way contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To quote the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. Who is your sucker in this issue? So, often with this category, the part that I have the most difficulty with is not necessarily finding the sucker, but finding the way that that suckitude furthers the plot. Mm. And I had a similar struggle with this issue. However, I think it is... Uh, laying the groundwork for something that's going to come up later. So you're asking what happens or, or what's the reason for what's the driver? Why are these dudes in the luxury cars tracing, chasing Jack Norris? I don't know, but we're probably going to find out later. But my sucker moment was A, Jack Norris doing a pretty good job. Sure. B, not yelling, where's my wife? Oh, that's true. Jumps out of the car and then vaults over the fence like a champion. Yeah. Which is all really out of character. So I picked uh, Norris. I think that's a fair choice. I suppose another possibility would be the people who are chasing Jack Norris. We don't know anything about them, but I think it's been established against the character of anybody who exists to pursue and want to spend more time with Jack Norris. What? (laughs) Oh, because, wait, they're the sucker? I think maybe you could make that argument. I see. That whoever is chasing Jack Norris is the sucker, because if they exist, they therefore should not want to spend more time with Jack Norris. Well, those guys were not my choice. My choice for a sucker was actually the Red Guardian. Basically, for the Red Guardian, I chose her for two reasons. One, as I said earlier, she pretty much says... Because my own beliefs are stupid, I am more susceptible to mind control. As I said, she's been established before as being both a communist and a Soviet patriot. Yes, she is critical of her government and many of their actions, but I think saying that, why would anybody believe the things I believe if they were not stupid dupes? Like me, I guess. Um, That seems very out of character to her. And also turning her outfit into a weird halter top, Daisy Duke-style top seems kind of out of character for her, which she does in this issue, which, let's get into that. 
Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion would you like to focus on? I think I've made it clear that one of the things that we should perhaps bring up is the Red Guardian's uh, outfit modifications. Yeah, let's start with that. What is up with that? I don't know what's up with that. She says that she has sustained minor lacerations, and so she needs to treat them. They go back to Steve's place to do that. You'd think she'd just take her costume off, treat the wounds, then put the costume back on, because the costume wasn't injured at all in the fight. I think we're maybe supposed to believe that she cut off parts of it, because she cut off the sleeves of the costume. She basically flash-danced her costume. Like, cut off the sleeves, scoop the neck out, hike it up, hop on the top, and then, like, but then tied it off in, like, a Daisy Duke thing. Dumped a bucket of water over her. Dumped a bucket of water over her chair while she leaned back in it. Yeah. As part of a weird performance art, like, new age dance maneuver that she does in a blue collar strip club. Pretty much. Um, It's a weird movie. It is a weird movie. I was disturbed, though, by the, when she says the minor lacerations bit, at least in the trade paperback. Like, it looks like her wrist is dripping a lot of blood Hmm. from it. Like, she's actually pretty badly lacerated well so maybe she just did need to tear her sleeves off to stop the bleeding but she's a communist like blood doesn't really pump through their veins it's it's more just like a icy like um kind of an icor type thing i'm led to believe like they're you know communists (laughs) they're they're not so much human beings kind of a automaton type thing so I, i think she could probably sustain a lot of loss of blood it's like a some kind of a weird like cold acid i think that would be uh running through her her veins right that was what i was led to believe growing up in the 80s yes i don't know i think it depends if it's like a a actual russian communist or a south american communist oh we're talking red dawn here yeah i mean (laughs) it seems like those are the choices you had well okay so back then i mean she could be like if she's like an ivan drago communist then definitely like the uh, cold uh, antifreeze sludge anti a sludgy antifreeze uh, probably with some acidic qualities uh, that she could probably stand to lose more of and still be fine. But if she's one of the people who is cheering for Rocky at the end of the movie, then I think that's just regular blood. So she could be in real trouble. Could be a whole switcheroo, like a re- uh, Keith Richards situation. Wait, was Keith Richards in Rocky for? No, I'm just saying you take out the bad blood and replace it with the good blood. Does he do that every day? They No, just it was a thing that was said to have happened, which he didn't confirm. He just got all his blood switched with somebody else's blood? Mm. That's a bad deal for that other person. I bet I bet they were high as fuck, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is great. Whoa! Did you read that biography? No! Autobiography of life? That's pretty fascinating. Does he talk about that in there? He basically says he won't talk about it. He won't talk about the fact that maybe somebody took all of his blood out and put it in another person and gave them his blood? He doesn't say it didn't happen. Let's just put it that way. Oh, man. If you're out there and you've got all of Keith Richards' blood... You're still high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> fucking don't bogart that Keith. Richard's blood? Oh. Fucking pass them over, buddy. Share it with some communists. Yeah, they need it. <laughs> they just have, like, a sludgy antifreeze acid, right? That's what you said. Okay. What were we talking about? <laughs> 
What was your favorite panel? Oh man, the art in this was nice. It was very, very good art. Keith Giffen and Klaus Janssen are re- really continuing to gel as a creative team, and uh, it's really nice to see. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of good stuff. I tend to go with the more kind of graphically striking, designery kind of panels, mm-hmm. but this one I, I just went goofy with my two choices. And uh, we already talked about the one, um, which is on page 15, that's the crack whack scene where, where Hulk is basically backfisting his two mm-hmm. buddies, and it's just funny. The other one that was a little bit more subtle in its goofiness, but totally goofy, is on page 22. Eric Warren, thank goodness, is back from the horse fiddle. Uh-huh. The horse fiddle. Yeah. Right. That was yours. I stole it. Yeah, that's why. It was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's back from the horse doctor. Feeling much better, but freaked the fuck out uh-huh. that she's making him, like, literally nosedive towards the Red Raja. <laughs> His eyes are, he's just like, ah, this is, what is happening? It is one seriously freaked out looking horse. Yep. No, I, I had that as one of mine, too, because honestly, other than the horse's expression, it is still a really, really striking panel. The Red Guardian, Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Clea just diving into battle. Val is talking about how the horse is all better, and the horse seems to be saying with his expression, I'm not that all better. No, 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 no. Still pumped full of uh, ketamine? Is that the horse tranquilizer that the kids like these days? Yeah, do the kids still like that? Oh, no, this is like a 70s thing, isn't it? Oh, it wasn't just a... I, it was a thing in the 90s. Oh, okay. I remember people trying to talk me into that being a good time. And it was one of those scenarios where be like, no, it's awesome. You got to try this, dude. You're going to sit in the corner for like four hours and not want anybody to touch you. And you'll think you're dying. You got to try it. It's like, no, I don't want... I want no part of your nightmare drug. I don't like, understand th- that. No. I like being altered as much as the next person. Sure. And, unless the next person is your dad, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to be in a way that sound, at least sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you just want to give everybody hugs. Yeah. The, the way that that drug has always been described to me just sounds like the Hegelian antithesis of a good time. But... That's what people are trying to sell me on with it. Terrifying. So maybe that is what's going on with Aragorn in this. Maybe he is still on Special K. And is uh, in that corner. And it's just like, no! Stop riding me. (laughs) This is terrible. Why did I go to a rave and do this drug? It was terrible. Worst idea ever. I don't even like this music. It's terrible. I like DJ K-O-K-O-K. But this is too much! Mm, yeah. Probably. I think that's what Aragorn is struggling with. I and think it's so. it's captured in that panel, so that's... Very well. It's I a like very it. nicely rendered panel. I can see why you liked that. I think my absolute favorite is the panel at the very end, where it is part of the epilogue, and it is the Goodbye Steve panel. Because, and I can't believe we didn't talk about this at all, Steve is quitting the team. But the panel in which he does that... It's really, really good, and it's another one where there are certain panels where you can really see Keith Giffen's influence, and there are certain panels where you can really see Klaus Janssen's influence, and this panel has Klaus Janssen all over it. 
I also should mention in the creative team, we have a different colorist this issue. It's Dave Hunt, who we have seen in previous Defenders issue and I've been a little bit critical on. But his style melds really, really well with Klaus Jansen and Keith Giffen's. And the coloration in this issue, I think Glynis Ween is a very good colorist, but in the last issue it didn't really meld as well. And this, I think, is in general a much, much better fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a badass uh, Somber Steve picture. Yeah. You know what? I think the reason we didn't talk about that is because the Defenders is kind of a team of quitters. Yeah. In a way. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Steve really hasn't quit the team the way every other member of the Defenders has. Is this the first time where Steve's been like, I'm out of here. I think so. Wow. Potentially the end of an era if it sticks. Yeah. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. It's already gone, man. Oh, that's why it's hard to say goodbye to it. All right, in this issue, who was the best defender and who was the worst offender? Best defender. So, if Steve had not been pulled out of the Red Raja, shit would have continued to go south. It's very important that Steve pull out. It's very important. And Steve wouldn't have been able to pull out if it were not... (laughs) (laughs) It gets better. If it were not for Clea. (laughs) Yeah. So, good job, Clea. Like, she doesn't get a chance to shine a lot in these books, I feel like. Even though she's intellectually powerful, magically powerful, can rock a body stocking and all of that. It really does seem like for the majority of the Defenders issues, she is just in the other room. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was was pleased to see her be like, you know what, I'm going to go in there and get my man out of the shit he got himself into. Yeah, she did a very, very good job. I decided to go with Red Guardian. She was my backup. She did a great job. She was, I believe, more mentally resilient than she is given credit for by her teammates. Um, she withstood the full blast of a one-on-one encounter with the Star of Kapistan slash the Red Rasha, which none of the other defenders were able to do, and did that despite acknowledging her perhaps cultural weakness towards being mind-controlled. Sure. Yeah. Um, she withstood a lot of laceration, lost a lot of that weird antifreeze acid sludge, and still managed to do pretty good. Did some nice flash dancing of her uniform. And most importantly, she beat up Kyle in a way that was funny. I was hoping you were going to say that that was actually why I had her. That was the, the main reason. <laughs> she basically just like grabs his jetpack and flings him head first into the ground. Mm-hmm. It's a nice move, and she's like, I feel bad doing this thing because I learned about how dumb you are as when we were allies. But, okay. Okay, yep. Yeah, she says she learned this weakness while they were allies, and I think we're supposed to infer that what she meant was his jetpack, but I think she really meant his weakness is what a dumbass he is. Mm. But yeah, great job, Red Guardian. Bolinski. Bolinski. Conversely, worst offender. I don't even feel bad about destroying your gem, Omar. Oh, yeah. That's Steve. I am so open minded <laughs> that I became an evil asshole for a little while. Sorry, not sorry, Steve. Yeah, sorry, not sorry, Steve is a very good choice. I actually went with a character I like much more. I think that in this issue, Hellcat was the worst offender. Oh, really? Why? Well, it was established in the previous issue 
that when she came back from her kung fu psychic training in space with Moon Dragon, she first stopped by the Avengers Mansion and was like, hey guys, I'm totally going to need your help with this cosmic level threat. I'm just going to go pop by to the Defenders and get them and then we'll all deal with this together. And in this issue, she just forgot. I think they could have used the Avengers' help on this one. I think there were probably at least two or three Avengers who would have been immune to the Ruby's charm. I'm not exactly sure who was on the roster at the time, but I bet the Vision was there. He's a synthesoid or whatever. He could totally, uh... I've already got a gem in my head. Yep. Hmm. Done, though. Exactly. She leaves a whole bunch of resources just sitting on the table when she goes to face a threat that I think everyone would have acknowledged that they were a little bit over their head on in this one. And I think that was just kind of a flightiness on her part, or did she just forget that the Avengers were around? Heat of battle. I guess, but either way, bad job here. I'm sorry to say, Hellcat, the worst offender. I'm not going to hold the other defenders responsible for the things that they were doing while they were under mind control. Yeah, it's not fair. Yeah, except for Steve. Well, that is different. Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? This one was more straightforward for me than usual. So sometimes you're in a bad mood or you're pissed off about something. And maybe you overreact to something. You act like a jerk. Apologize. Like, recognize that you overreacted. You said something maybe you shouldn't have said. Smash somebody's sanctorum you shouldn't have (laughs) smashed. And just be like, yo, man, I'm sorry, I was out of line. I was in a bad place. Whatever. But, yeah. you know, just own own your shit. That's that's Hulk's rules. This, uh, this I issue. think that's fair. That's so during the epilogue, the Hulk wonders if the reason that Steve is quitting the team is because the Hulk smashed his sanctorum. Yeah. And he says, Hulk, sorry about that. Yeah, and, sorry, man. I was upset. And Steve's like, no, no, no. Anybody would have been upset if I was gone. You are blameless in this situation, the Hulk. We would all freak out, I think, if I were gone for a whole day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a safe space to apologize, really. <laughs> right. I think anybody that's a would good say call. That. I had the Hulk's rule being everybody likes to feel appreciated. Mm. Whether you're the Hulk, whether you're Doctor Strange appreciating that the Hulk freaked out a little bit while you were gone, or whether you are Rock Superstar's Rush appreciating that a comic book is dedicated to you and deciding to reciprocate that appreciation by inviting some uh, nice comic book creators backstage to your concert, or if you're rap superstars, inviting two nice young podcast men in Portland, Oregon to come and visit your rap show in England. Everybody likes to feel appreciated. That's true. And so, I mean... Thank you. Me, I like to feel appreciated. I think you like to feel appreciated. What's the best? The Wu-Tang Clan probably likes to feel appreciated. Mm-hmm. Public Enemy likes to feel appreciated. Oh, I appreciate it. De La Soul, do you guys like to feel appreciated? Maybe mm-hmm. we could all get together and talk about this. Yeah. And that's the Hulk's rules. And thank you for calling us Yellows. <laughs> <laughs> well, Corey. Yep. It's been a heck of a ride. Woo. Do you have the Wong idea? I don't, but Dr. Strange sure did. In the year of our Lord? 1977. And the month of our Lord? March. What was the Wong idea? So, Strange was trying to chill out. 
He uh-huh. wanted to sit down and watch some good time, situational, family-friendly comedy in the form of the premiere of Eight is Enough. Oh, my. He was disturbed by some raucous music coming from Wong's room. What was that music, Corey? So Wong had gone out and got himself a couple pretty awesome records, but one was the single, it was the first one released by The Clash, which was the song White Riot. So Wong likes all kinds of music. Punk rock, one of those. And uh, so he was really jamming out to this. And Strange is all pissed off. His eight is enough is interrupted. Comes up and he listens to that and catches some of the lyrics. And he's like, Wong, I'm shocked. How could you listen to music that calls for a race war? Oh, dear. And Wong's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, you've been mixed up about all kinds of race stuff in the past, buddy. (laughs) And then sits him down and gives him a talk about how it's basically, you know, the Clash saying that, you know, everybody basically needs to stand up against injustice, which is the point of the song. And, um, you know, kind of tries to educate him and set him straight. And Steve's like, yeah, whatever. And he goes back to watching Eight is Enough. But that's what was going on. Ah, well, I think maybe after Wong's little speech, they decided that, you know what? I appreciate that. We may not agree on everything, but let's try to enjoy some things together. And so he brought Wong out and had Wong watch Eight is Enough with him. (laughs) And Wong was like, I don't know if I can do this, (laughs) This man. This is really bad. He did his best, but eventually Wong was just like, okay, I think I can watch this shit, but I'm gonna need some strong Jamaican incense. So he broke out the strong Jamaican incense, and he and Doctor Strange did watch the end of Eight is Enough, and then stayed tuned later on, watched The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And a certain performer really, really tickled Steve's fancy bone. (laughs) He was watching, and a young comedian named Jay Leno made his Tonight Show debut. And Steve was like, This large-chinned individual is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh, Wong. It's a good thing I'm a physician because I think he bruised my funny bone. I've never laughed so hard. And Wong was like, uh... And he ended up having to hit the Jamaican incense a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. At which point he did actually get some chuckles out of the set. But at that point, he was pretty far gone. Mm-hmm. And Steve was catching a contact high from him, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, Steve wasn't partaking? No, not uh, particularly. Uh, I mean, Wong was kind of hotboxing the room with the strong Jamaican incense. Sure, so sure. Steve didn't realize that what was happening at the time. But by the end of the night, he was getting pretty goofy. And they decided to make some prank calls together. They ended up prank calling the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Oh, the old, uh... SAO. The old SAO. And they were like, Have you seen Uranus? Because there's a ring on Uranus. Hang up, hang up, hang up. <laughs> and they hung up. Apparently, the, uh, the people at the Smithsonian Astro- Astrophysical Observatory did not get the joke, so they got out their, uh, their telescopes. They probably had them out already, but they decided to look Uranus's way, and lo and behold, on March 10th, they announced their discovery that Uranus did, in fact, have rings that they were able to see for the first time. Thank you, Jay Leno. Thank you, Jamaican Incense. <laughs> and thank you, Eight is Enough. <laughs> wow. And 
That was the wrong idea that mm. the SAO got, which ended up being the right idea. How about that? Mm-hmm. Thank you, dear listeners, for having the right idea and continuing to catch the wave of the future and hang ten on it with us. Tighten up the defense. Cowabunga. Yep. It's our catchphrase that is taking the world by storm. Yep. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, um, Periscope. Oh, are we? Or Down Periscope. You should watch Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer, the movie in which it's a major plot point that Kelsey Grammer has a dick tattoo. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, it could say, Tighten up the defense. I caught the wave of the future with them, and I hanged 10 on it. <laughs> Cowabunga! Hanged in 10. I hanged in 10. Good job. On the wave of the future, cowabunga. Dude. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then say dude at the end. Yeah, surfing. Yeah, then say surfing. All of this. Type it in there. This is good. It's gold. Liquid gold <laughs> like Velveeta. Mm. Really good. If you would like to donate monetarily, We've made some updates to the Patreon page to reward people who donate at certain levels. And uh, people have been responding to that pretty well, which has been really gratifying. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If we reach the next level on that, I'll start doing weekly reviews of classic comic books uh, as either short videos or audio, depending on which you guys would prefer. So thanks. And also, you will still, if you donate at any level, get access to the monthly podcast what the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. It's a show that Lisa and I host about Howard the Duck. And it's a hoot. Or should I say a quack? Mm. I shouldn't say that. You're right, Corey. Mm. No, I won't. I won't ever say it again. I'm, Thank you. I'm sorry. It's okay. Hey, this is Future Hub who is doing the editing and just realized that I forgot to give the address of the Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash T.T. Wasteland. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bolinski. Bolinski. And they know it. Spider-Man in The Champ. The dressing room of boxing champ Aldo Mumje just before the big fight. Thud! Knife through a note. Dear Aldo, I'm gonna get you before the ref can count two. Signed, The Foe. Bong! My tingling spider sense tells me there's going to be a big fight tonight and not just between the boxers. Aldo Mumje is about to finish his fall to the canvas after a knockout punch by his opponent. One! Two! I've always wanted to catch a champ in action. Throws cupcake into referee's mouth. Here's a hostess cupcake. What of what is the mm, delicious moist chocolatey cake? Finish the count, you bum! Never mind the count, I'll finish the referee, alias the foe. How did you know, wall crawler? You're the only ref I know who can only count to two. So, 
Enjoy the fudgy icing while you can, ref, because you're going from a ring to a square. A square with bars on it. Thanks, Web Puncher. These Hostess cupcakes are a knockout, too. You'll get a big delight in every bite of Hostess cupcakes. That was a very complicated Hostess ad. It's hard to understand. How did he get a job as a referee if he can only count to two? A big part of the referee's job is counting to ten. Also, why is the other boxer wearing a green sweater? Why is he wearing a shirt? Green sweater. At all. Sweater. Like a smock, almost like a hot. Oh, I was wondering why he was wearing a shirt, too. And I was like, oh, is he just, is he ashamed of his body? (laughs) Like, is this like wearing a t-shirt in the pool? But I think what's going on is I don't think that's supposed to be green. I think that's supposed to be Spider-Man's webbing catching him before he falls. Because Spider-Man does say, I always wanted to catch a champ in action. That is the answer, because in the previous panel, he's shirtless. Yeah, I thought he maybe just put on a shirt before he got into the ring. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh... You shouldn't wear a shirt into the boxing match. No, not it's, cool. It's not fair. Like, could be wearing, like, body armor under that shirt. What an asshole. What? This makes no sense, because the whole point is, like, the foe's a bad guy because he's not counting the full, you know, thing when the guy gets knocked down. But the guy's not knocked down. Yeah. He's in the process of getting punched, and Spider-Man's like, hey, stop hitting the guy. It, Spider-Man's actually really fucking up the whole boxing thing. Maybe Spider-Man just had some money on the champ. Mm, Could be. It's a very confusing ad. It's still one of my favorites. Yeah, no, good call. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes me want some Hostess cupcakes. Yeah, pretty good. They're delicious. Pretty tasty. You get a big delight in every bite. That's what they say? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what we say. Mm Mm-hmm. We just said it. I know. Okay. My Getty Lee is very close to my Skeletor. <laughs> it really is. 